Howdy, and welcome to season two of For the Greater Defense, a podcast series from the Ready Room. My name's Josh. And my name's Marlies. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Colonel Michael Jackson, an experienced senior leader within the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance community. He is currently an adjunct lecturer at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, where he teaches a course titled War, Peace, Competition in the Space Domain. Colonel Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to join you, Josh and Marlies. So just to kind of get a quick background on you. So you've had an extensive career within the military space community. Um, and I want to begin by asking you to share a bit about um, your background with our viewers. Of course. Um, so I grew up in Houston, Texas, uh, at least the Houston area. And they call it Space City for a reason. So growing up, uh, at my age, we were taught things in elementary school, like memorizing the names of the Mercury 7 astronauts and those type of things. So I, could, I guess you could say that I was influenced early by the space business, at least human spaceflight. But going from there, when I was attending undergrad, um, my, my undergrad was in geosciences, and I started working with a program called Landsat, and Landsat data is used um, by NASA, but also by farmers and lots of other uh, customers. And that was my first exposure to what most folks will call remote sensing or earth observation data. I was commissioned into the Air Force and I started off in the ICBM community. And as I progressed through the ranks, um, I was assigned to a headquarters and part of that headquarters job was doing intelligence work with remote sensing capabilities that we have on orbit. And uh, we did well enough there where we were trying to track adversary mobile missiles and other capabilities um, that I was uh, ultimately hired through a panel of interviews into an organization called the National Reconnaissance Office. Uh, the National Reconnaissance Office uh, acquires, builds, and operates our nation's spy satellites, to keep it simple. Um, they certainly do a lot more than that, but they provide all of the major data sources through satellites uh, for company or for organizations like the National Security Agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and all of the other Department of National Intelligence agencies. And uh, it was a blessing to get to go work there because I did so during a period where things were very busy, but also very uncertain. And so I enjoyed my time in the National Reconnaissance Office. I got to work everything from imagery satellites to signals intelligence satellites, communications to ground infrastructure, and I get to spend a time working very tailored applications for the special communities out there that include uh, various three-letter agencies and the military folks. And uh, that kept me in the service, quite frankly, because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I actually joined the Air Force on a dare. And after about 10 years, I was trying to decide, is this what I wanted to keep doing? and being able to directly apply something as significant as intelligence production to a hard problem set in the defense of our nation inspired me. And that kept me going and I stayed in the Air Force for another 18 years after that. Um, some of it, um, a good a number of years working specifically with the spy satellites, but also in the missile warning community and the ground infrastructure supporting satellite operations, then ultimately, ultimately in senior leadership roles, running multi-thousand person organizations that were doing those same missions. And uh, I loved every bit of it. Uh, the pinnacle role was probably 
2017, when I was deployed to the Middle East as the Director of Space and Cyber Forces. It's a big, long title to basically say that I was accountable for all the space activities in the Central Command area of responsibility, as well as all the cyber activities. And I was reporting that in some cases, or executing those activities in some cases directly on behest of the White House. And tying all of that together as a senior leader um, was daunting, but was awesome. And doing real work countering uh, activities on the planet such as ISIS and uh, fundamental extremist, fundamentalist type activities that were going on in that region and being able to uh, truly make a difference at that level um, to this day is something I'm proud of. Did you notice any differences in work cultures and overarching missions uh, at, in the various agencies and organizations you were a part of? That's a great question, and the answer is yes, um, but not in a clash of cultures. Um, the military tends to be very focused on a mission. The National Reconnaissance Office, in many cases, is focused on a technological solution towards a number of missions that may be beyond the military. And sitting as a military member in the National Reconnaissance Office, I was fully dipped in both cultures. And then when you roll in other cultures, like the experts who are analyzing copious amounts of data, trying to provide highly, or I'll just say, recommendations with high confidence, um, you experience a whole nother culture because they're inherently hesitant to make hardcore calls without full data. And so um, where I found myself was kind of in the mix of multiple co cultures. And then you add in things like an industry partners, you add in international partners. All of those bring a unique perspective and a diversity of thought that I don't know many other officers that got to experience that. And uh, I'm enormously thankful for that opportunity. All right, so now that our audience has a better understanding of kind of your background and expertise, um, we want to go ahead and tra transition over to the discussion of the importance of the space domain. So um, what are the primary objectives um, or national security concerns that motivates the United States presence in space? Ooh. That is very open-ended and I could talk for a long time. In fact, I teach a course on that very thing. Um, but I would start with this. The U.S. military preeminence uh, on the earth, whether on the land domain or in the maritime domain or in the air domain, is underpinned by our capabilities in space. Those capabilities in space are sometimes tough to categorize, but the way I'll do it is earth observation of remote, remote sensing, using satellites as the ultimate high ground, um, to provide everything from reconnaissance products to early warning of what's going on. Communications, high-speed communications around the globe, um, literally at the speed of light. Um, positioning, navigation, and timing. Most folks refer to that as GPS, but GPS is one system that provides that. These space capabilities have fundamentally changed the way we conduct military operations but have also become complete, completely marbled into civilian life. Your GPS activities on your phone, um, those type of things. What I don't think most folks realize is those space capabilities have essentially crossed over a threshold to where they're no longer military exclusive. They are now more on the 
uh, on the order of utilities upon which we depend for day-to-day -day life up there with electricity and those type of functions. Um, I know that Wi-Fi is on Maslow's hierarchy of needs for many folks, but Wi-Fi doesn't happen without space capabilities uh, to provide the unique timing signals. And so it's both a blessing and a curse that most folks don't realize how much space is completely enmeshed in how we do day-to-day -day life or how the military does operations on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the blessing part is that if we're doing our job well, it should be transparent. The curse is that we don't necessarily see the advocacy for the, the space enterprise and haven't over the many years, just until recently, as certain adversaries out there have started to threaten space capabilities because they know the U.S. is so reliant upon it. And how quickly do you see space technology progressing today compared to in the past? I think space technology is hurtling forward faster than it ever has. And I think the technology aspects of it are due to a confluence of factors. Everything from miniaturization of electronic components, um, the ability to rapidly uh, manufacture satellites when in the past it would take many, many months, if not years, and I, I liken it to building um, a, a thousand Fords versus three Ferraris. Um, as we move forward in the, those type of things, uh, the digital domain, the, the com computing advances, and particularly as we move into quantum computing and artificial intelligence solutions, both machine learning and generative AI, um, all of those things are fully hand in glove with the space capabilities up there. Sensor data is going to flow into artificial intelligence systems to provide warfighters uh, high confidence, high fidelity, actionable decision material. And so from the technology aspect, I don't know that the space business has ever seen the expansion that we are now. And it's more than just the military realm. It includes the civil realm with the NASA's and European space agencies of the world. It includes the commercial realm dramatically. Every mission you can think of can happen on orbit now and I believe the technology that most people would say is the pivotal point is reusable launch boosters. Um, SpaceX Corporation pioneered that. They were not the first to do it. Actually, Blue Origins was the first to do it. But SpaceX has put it out to market in such a way that they now dominate world launches. And they, they dominate that market so thoroughly, but reusing a rocket as others have said, is akin to reusing an airplane. We never launched an airplane and then threw it away when we were done. Now we reuse those rockets. And the cost to put something on orbit per pound or per kilogram has dropped uh, by about 90% and will only continue to do so. So the confluence of all those factors um, is the benefit of not just space technology, but all of the other types of technology advances we've seen, but from places like Silicon Valley and advanced manufacturing, but they manifest themselves very robustly in the space domain. So earlier in our chat, you talked about how being in space is the ultimate high ground. So how do space-based assets support military operations, uh, specifically and enhance situational awareness for the United States Armed Forces? I'll start by telling a little bit of a war story. Um, so 
nearly 20 years ago, certainly over 15 years ago, I found myself walking down the streets of Baghdad. And as I was walking with another officer at the time, um, we heard a loud explosion very close to us. It shook your insides, if you know what I mean. And uh, there were people hurt, there were lots of things destroyed. And soon thereafter, we started getting the sirens saying that there was inbound uh, weaponry. And that's when I learned, okay, we have amazing capabilities, but if we don't get that information processed, transmitted, and relayed to others in harm's way, um, it's pointless to invest the trillions of dollars that we have into uh, our national treasures, if you will. Um, and so the military advantage that we have is not just the exquisite sensors on orbit, but our ability to move that data to the people who need it in very, very, very fast order. And we have gotten much better than that over the past 15 years. Um, that digital data transfers um, now happen so quickly. It's You're talking seconds from detection to the right people being notified, which saves lives. The other piece that space capabilities and other capabilities provide is whether it's a satellite image that is accurately repurposed with positioning, navigation, and timing, I'll just say GPS coordinates, allows us to be incredibly accurate if we have to do kinetic operations, if we actually do strikes. Um, and we're able to do so um, to reduce both the threat to the folks that have to go in and conduct those strikes, but also to reduce collateral damage and civilian casualties. Um, that is fundamentally changed from the way we conducted airstrikes in something like World War II, where we would use a thousand bombers. Each bomber had 10 um, air crew in there, and they would fly over and hope to hit a factory in the 1943-1944 timelines. And in many cases, they would drop thousands of bombs, maybe hit the factory, but also blow up entire cities. Whereas using space capabilities nowadays, leveraging those space capabilities. We can put one bomb, smaller bomb, on a target to create the same effect and maybe only put one human in harm's way or even none. It's the other thing where I see the trend moving in space is the standoff capabilities to where we use unmanned aerial platforms, unmanned sea platforms, etc., uncrewed, I should say. Um, as we move into the drone world, if you will, we are conducting operations right now all around the world from right here in the United States using satellite technology to link those together and operating in real time, observing and in some cases executing strikes from right here in the United States in five or six different locations. We don't have to put all of those folks forward into harm's way. Um, there's lots of other ways where the space capabilities underpin our nation's advantages, whether you're a soldier or a sailor or uh, an air crew, all of, the, all of them are safer because of the space capabilities, at least for now. But our adversaries essentially have watched us and watched game tape, if you will, to use a football analogy, for the last 20 years. They're looking at our game tape and realizing how we um, have executed our military operations and are trying very hard to 
um, to gain an advantage over that. And can you, can you give us a quick snapshot of the unique ways the U.S. collects intelligence from space? Certainly. Um, so the Director of National Intelligence openly acknowledges that we collect images and other type of information from in imagery satellites. So think what we like to call the predator view. You can get thermal images, you can get hyperspectral images or different uh, aspects of the spectrum um, to create imaging. So maybe it's something that's very hot on the ground. That's the basis for things like our missile warning capabilities. You're looking for a hot missile leaving and trying to figure out where it's headed. Maybe it's trying to identify um, indications and warnings that a fleet is about to put to sea. Um, so remote sensing Earth observation using everything from infrared to visible to other things is, is probably the one most people are familiar with. The other thing that the Director of National Intelligence will talk about, uh, well, there's two others. One is signals intelligence. Anything that emanates a signal, whether it's a radar, whether it's a mobile phone, whether it's uh, any type of electronic device, um, can be collected upon. And in some cases, those are satellites doing that. And in most cases, if we're talking overseas, the satellites are certainly going to relay that data. So, um, and then the last one is what I'll call, uh, what, what the DNI in their definitions called measures and signals intelligence, also known as MAZENT. And that is picking up things using uh, unique sensors, everything from vibrations to uh, wave heights, to those type of things to determine how they may affect a military operation. And all of those are conjoined at various centers around the globe to provide military forces an operational advantage. So kind of moving over to our adversaries, um, so what measures are in place to deter and respond to potentially hostile states in space? So this may be the most difficult question anybody's asked me in a while, because um, the measures that are in place, I will say, are less than effective at the moment. It is the stated policy of this nation to deter adversary attacks against our homeland. It is the stated military policy of this nation that the, our integrated deterrence efforts include space, and the space domain is critical for our success. So we don't want anyone to attack our space assets. The Secretary of the Air Force, the Honorable Frank Kendall, refers to our space assets that we have up there now as like operating a, maritime, a merchant marine or a maritime fleet without a Navy. And some of that is the rationale behind why we have a United States Space Force now, is to start taking a more um, deterrence-based approach which is backed up with hard power capabilities. But that doesn't, that should not usurp the broader aspect of deterrence, which is communications and making sure that folks realize that we may respond either in space or in any other way should our space capabilities come under attack. The trick is there's not a lot of behavior history or legacy in space. For many, many years, it was a bipolar world between us and the, what is now the former Soviet Union. And we had lots more understanding of actions and reactions with them than we do in a multipolar world. And so as we move forward and we're using terms like deterrence, we almost have to tailor those to specific audiences. 
And in fact, that's what the Department of Defense has put forth is tailored deterrence options for specific potential adversaries. And so when the question is what measures are in place, those measures rely upon 70 years of deterrence thought being applied to modern digital domain in the space and candidly the cyber realm. And I would say that they are nascent at best. We have a long way to go. And um, hopefully the folks listening to this podcast are more than willing to engage in that discussion because it's not the same as a nuke for a nuke. It is going to be very different, particularly if an adversary does something that is hard to attribute back to that adversary. And uh, compared to conventional warfare, what characteristics make military innovation in space unique? Um, That's an interesting question. I guess the way I would start to approach it is that the vast majority of the space history has been fully in support of national security, security objectives here in the U.S., but also in places like Russia. Um, the very first rockets that we were using were a derivative of German rockets from World War II. The very first capabilities that we put up on those early rockets had more to do with military reconnaissance and trying to determine strategic indications and warning for organizations like the CIA or for the Department of Defense. Um, So from the very beginning, the space capabilities uh, have been married to a national security paradigm. In part with that, there is certainly a bit of a schism to where those same capabilities can also be used for civil and commercial applications. And that's something that the U.S. has done quite well, whether it's NASA putting humans on the moon and beyond. Um, There are two NASA satellites that have been flying for 50 years and are far beyond our solar system. Um, But it's essentially using a lot of the same technology, whether it's the commercial industry using a lot of the same technology or in some cases the the seed money from the Department of Defense. Um, The characteristics for... Military innovation uh, has either been in step with or one step ahead of the broader innovation that has happened in the space business. Um, I would offer maybe one or two unique vignettes. I'll start with one, um, and I'll circle back to positioning, navigation, and timing, the GPS system, which everyone is so familiar, with which everyone is so familiar. Um, It started as a way to ensure that our missile capabilities were more accurate. And then only after other events happened in the civilian world with the Korean Airlines shoot down and subsequent activities in the 90s when President Clinton made it available for civilian use at high granularity do we see this explosion of GPS capabilities all the way down to the individual level. And... A military capability that is now dominated by commercial use to the point where if it's not there, our society suffers um, is not unusual. But in this case, it's profound. All right. So what do you think worries you most about our presence in space? And then on the flip side of that, what makes you the most hopeful? Um. 
so I think there's two pieces to this, and one of them, I owe Marley's a, an apology. I didn't answer the last question back to conventional warfare. And I guess what I'll do there very quickly is most space capabilities that were put on orbit are an extension of conventional warfare. They were not put up there. There was not space capabilities for space warfare. Now, that may change moving forward. In fact, I bet it will as we start putting up satellites that are purely meant to attack or defend other satellites. But the vast majority of space capabilities that are up there um, to this point have been designed to support conventional warfare as it has evolved over the decades. So I wanted to close out that piece of it. Josh, your question about um, what worries me most about our presence in space, it's that it was established, launched, put into operations without considering an adversary's threat. So the vast majority of the capabilities that we have up there are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to everything from jamming to shoot down. And they were not designed in the same way we would with a conventional force. They were designed as systems to be operated in a benign environment because we never considered the domain to be an extension of a warfighting environment. And I'll say that's something that um, the listeners should probably put in their head. I don't believe in space war. I believe in war. War will, particularly a war with a peer competitor, will extend from the deepest depths of the ocean to the highest echelons of space, across cyberspace, uh, hopefully not on our homeland, but it'll be on land, sea, air, cyberspace, space. Those domains are all warfighting domains, and a major conflict um, will draw in all of those domains. There are going to be cases, particularly on the escalation spectrum where it may be space only, maybe cyber only, as we're in some cases communicating with air quotes around that, communicating with one another about uh, escalatory actions. But for the most part, um, the space domain, it's not war in space, it's war, and war will extend into space. To close out our episode for our audience who are students and recent graduates, what kind of career opportunities do you see for those interested in national security and defense issues within space? Um, so it's going to tie back to Josh's question, which once again, I didn't finish the second half of that. The piece that makes me most hopeful about ongoing space activities is that it's no longer the realm of the engineering world in secure classified rooms. It is now openly discussed and intelligent folks with various and diverse perspectives are going to be able to provide a far better um, litany of options, if you will, than just the traditional commu space community. And so that makes me hopeful that um, folks who might even be listening to this podcast are going to make an outsized impact on the overall uh, space ecosystem. Circling that back to the type of career opportunities, that's where I see it. Um, there's going to be engineering advances. There's going to be technological advances. In your lifetime, we're going to see humans on Mars. You're going to see people routinely travel to space for everything from tourism to uh, commercial mining, etc. That's going to happen in the decades to come. 
And so what I see um, as career opportunities, it's pretty much open to almost any interest you have. There's going to need, we need lawyers to help define space law, which doesn't exist very much right now. We're going to need finance. Venture capital is flowing into the space business, but it's not doing so with the same risk tolerance or risk understanding that we see in other areas. So when it comes to national security, because we now have a broader, we're starting to understand a bro more broadly the impacts uh, of the space business, national security policymakers who have an understanding of the space capabilities, our dependence upon them and why we need to do what we need to do are going to be worth their weight in gold in my opinion because they're not gonna have to learn it on the fly. It's already part of their nomenclature just like other aspects of it have been, whether it's deterrence or other aspects have been for decades. It's just now applying that to a unique domain where most of the work hasn't been done yet. Most of the cognitive work has been on the engineering side, not on the philosophical, not on the policy side. And as we move forward, that's where I think um, where you're gonna see the biggest leaps is what is what do we mean by responsible behavior? Who are the partners with which we choose to join in this spacefaring journey? Um, those things are still yet to be determined, which should be exciting to anybody who's a little bit interested in it. All right, so final question, just how can students prepare themselves for an intelligence career related to space? What kind of books, articles, and resources do you recommend? And then what are some soft and hard skills that they should learn? Sure. Um, so I think in many cases, when we start talking about satellite technology or space capabilities supporting Intel, uh, people tend to immediately glom on to spy satellites. And I think it's really a broader construct than that. And so those who might be interested in the business, why are we trying to collect certain information? From whom are we trying to get it? And what's the best manner to do so? And once that's done, how does that data flow and become part of operations, part of strategy, part of policy making. How do those pieces and parts come together? So I wouldn't say go look for books about the type of spy satellites we have up there. I would say go look for books on why people are more interested in um, the space domain. Space 2.0 by Rob Pyle is a is an interesting place to start. You'll learn a little bit about the next generation, if you will, of um, spacefaring and where we're going and why and how that's all changing. But the other pieces, uh, the other piece of this discussion, is tied to how um, how do you prepare for an intelligence career? What do you need to do? And I think ultimately it's looking at the space capabilities as both a domain that needs to be protected, which requires a certain set of intelligence skills, but also a domain that supports all of the other intelligence skills. And if you can become conversant in those, you're going to be able to drop in just about anywhere in the intel community and make an outsized difference. All right. Well, that about wraps up the first episode. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And everyone listening, we'll see you all for episode two. Thanks again.